Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 56th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that only sort of gets that three-hour interviews are the utter opposite of bite-sized content. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. Uh, a quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-Face.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling your latest spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James, and all of our loyal listeners. We're glad to be here and looking forward to everything we've got for you this week, which is quite a bit. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, break down the agenda for this week, please, and thank you. Sure. We've got a show in three segments this week. Our first segment is Top Movers. This is where we'll be looking at the cards that have seen the greatest change in value over the last week. Segment two is our Cards to Watch. These are cards that James and I think have a potential for price movement in the mid to near future. And finally, segment three, we have an interview with Peter Tweed and Tom uh, Reese Reese of Cardsphere the new card sharing website um, that's similar to some of the other options that are on the market, but still distinctly different, uh, reminiscent of Puka Trade. So we've got a good long hour interview with those guys, a lot of information in there. So let's dive right in. Segment one, our top movers. We are starting out the week with Paradise Mantle from Modern Masters. This is one of the zero mana equipment uh, that Cheerios plays. Uh, You can drop it and stick it on a creature, and they have the ability to tap for mana. Looks like the price jumped from about $1.80 into the three and change range for about a double up. Um, But that's already started to deflate. I'm looking at copies right now at $2.75 shipped. Um, so it has come down a little bit, but there aren't too many of those before you climb right back into the three, four or $5 range. Uh, and then it's, it's a pretty short, pretty short run until you're out of copies entirely. Actually, I think you're only about 15 vendors and then you're hitting the foils at six bucks. So if Cheerios continues to be popular, uh, and there still continues to be pressure on the inventory for Paradise Mantle, I wouldn't be surprised to see that dry up pretty good. Yep. So next on our list, we have Basilisk Collar, an equipment that surprisingly has only ever been printed once in Worldwake. This is the two-mana equipment that gives uh, creatures that are equipped with it Death Touch and Lifelink, uh, which has been showing up as a two-of in Eldrazi Tron builds for Modern, um, largely because when you equip this to Walking Ballista, <laughs> the Lifelink and Death Touch starts to turn the thing into a bit of a Gatling gun. Um, you know, if this thing's got four counters on it, and it, and you use it to take out a couple of creatures, um, or heaven forbid, finish off your opponent. Um, all is well in the world. Yeah, yeah. It showed up on camera in Vancouver, I think, when one of the Eldrazi players was using it, and uh, the match that I saw wasn't particularly impressive. Uh, but it did kind of remind. Once people saw it on the table with Walking Blissa, I think there was kind of this click. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you that. What do you think? Of, do you think we see this this year, like Modern Masters three? Because uh, the price has been high for a while, 
Um, it's been over five or six bucks for at least a year now. Uh, you know, I've got like one or two floating around. I think I even have a foil one and I'm real tempted to sell it, uh, ahead of the, ahead of a possible reprint here. What do you think the odds are there? Mm, I mean, I think the odds are as good as any other, uh, you know, fringe playable rare in modern. Um, however, because inventory is super low and the card is eminently, uh, reprintable that even if it doesn't show up in mm uh, three which it easily could um it could easily show up in a commander set um any given fall so yeah i would be thinking that now is a good time to get out on this card just in general all right i will move it out of my personal binder and into my trade i mean the thing about it is that there's really no story beats or um naming problems with the card um or mechanics that prevent it from being thrown in just about anywhere right so right um yeah, I mean, reprint risk equal high. Yeah, you want to talk about feeling really bad. You should look up the price of this card back when World Wake released. <laughs> it was a dime. Um, I'm sure I threw right. some out. It looks like exactly the kind of card I would have left on a draft table. A dog collar? I don't know playing this crap. Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so let's move on to uh, to Tangle from Invasion. We are looking at the foil copies specifically. Tangle is a two-mana fog that oh. also prevents people's creatures from untapping. The non-foil, this is, there's only one printing of this card, which is wild. Uh, but the non-foils are like in the $3 range. But in the foils this week, I'm looking, I'm seeing a jump from 7 to 14 for about a double up. When I look over on TCG, there's only one foil copy available at like basically $20. But the market price is still 7 so clearly I don't think that anything has sold at the new price. Um, but we're definitely just kind of in that waiting to see what people will pay. Uh, I would be terrified to have copies of this card around because this is very... You know, it's it's probably too good for standard, but that doesn't mean it couldn't show up in foil somewhere. Uh, and I guess I don't want to take that risk because when you know if they print this in something in foil, the foil prices on the original one are are going to crater pretty hard. Yeah, agreed. Uh, definitely another uh, kind of fringe card that you don't want to be holding too long for fear of reprint risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, even if it's not modern, ma- like a standard set or modern, well, it wouldn't be modern masters. Even if it's not another standard set, it could be like a conspiracy. That's a perfect conspiracy card, I think. Sure. All right. So next on the list, we have Death's Shadow, also out of World Wake. Um, the the uh, fringe playable rares just keep on giving this week. This is the um, seven fifty to fifteen dollar move um, for a double up. Um, was highlighted at GP Vancouver as the deck to beat. Uh, in the hands of numerous players who uh, all made day two. Um, and uh, the Death Shadow builds were, you know, people were scared that without Gataxian Probe um, and um, uh, in the potential absence down the road of Become Immense that those decks would be near unplayable. That turns out to be completely untrue because with neither of those cards in the build, um, people have found ways to get down to low life totals in a hurry and hit people upside the head with Death Shadow and Tarmogoyf. Um, which also gives me a little bit of hope for Tarmogoyf uh, seeing a bit of a bump if it doesn't show up in MM3, which I fully expect to be the case. Uh, yeah, this is very likely reprint. You know, this uh, this really did extremely well in Vancouver. We saw Sam Black, Josh, Relayton, and a third person whose name escapes me all play this deck. All do, uh, three of them top aided. Um, you know, they really just broke modern for the week. Um, so it, it, they're calling it the best deck in the format, but yeah, this is 
I think it's been around long enough that this has got a pretty good target for uh, Modern Masters 3 or shortly thereafter. So I'm happy to sell this now while it's the hot target and the metagame hasn't adjusted yet. I could easily see this um, showing up in the set on March 17th. Uh, and I don't, I'm don't. i glad I sold my copies ahead of the, the game several months ago. Yeah, and I, I want to highlight here that you're going to hear James and I talk a lot about cards that could show up in Modern Masters 3. They will not all be in Modern Masters 3, obviously, but enough of them are that you kind of you don't want to hold 10 and find out three of them got like reprinted. It's just easier to just sell everything now. It's much safer. I, I think that the downside is higher than the upside with MM3. Um, yeah, yeah, especially with the supply out there. I mean, you're not going to see Death... You know, if Death Shadow shows up, it's not going to drop from... Uh, you know, fifteen to a ten. It's going to drop from fifteen to a dollar fifty. You know? I don't know about that. I mean, they, given its its role in modern right now as a four of, it could, it could hit four or five and it, and be solidly there. Part of this depends on <clears throat> whether the uh, rumored uh, ever uh, increasing level of inventory available for this set ends up being outpaced by an excellent uh, set of. Uh, included chase cards, right? If the if the set is super impressive, then that inventory might be justified. If the, the set is underwhelming, um, then relatively little of it will be opened, and uh, some of these cards might actually be able to hold their price points. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's possible that it could be that much. Um, I'm trying to look back and find where the heck is the Modern Masters for set. The original Engineered Explosives dropped really dramatically um a couple copies a couple cards got slaughtered in the modern masters or modern masters 2 printing so i think that um you could see something similar on a card like this which is not fringe playable but like single archetype playable you know what i mean yeah i mean back that was like what 2013 uh, yeah and that was a really limited run too yeah and engineer explosives did get under 10 but never got under five no, no, but it was, like I said, it was a much smaller print run where, you know, we're hearing unconfirmed, essentially, reports that MM3 is, you know, what, if between five and ten times more available, if not more than the first Modern Masters? Yeah, I don't know about five or ten times, but we're hearing basically that the distributors have a ton of it sitting around and people are being told they can get as much as they want. Um, how much that means they actually have if everybody chose to activate on that offer um, is still debatable. Um this is a little tricky because in the past, with the, you know, the stores could say, "Well, we've been allocated four cases," and if they were allocated two cases the time before, then now you can say, "Well, they're being offered double what they were the last time." Um, but when it's you know, when the amount being offered is the infinity symbol, and we know that that's not actually true, it's kind of tough to get a read on how much is really out there. True. True. Um, okay, let's move on to. Demir Signet, uh, we are looking, so there's an interesting story, well, not interesting, <laughs> there is a story here. Uh, we're looking at the Command, Commander's Arsenal, uh, not Commander's Arsenal, just Commander's Edition specifically, um, from the first Commander set. So the price is showing a jump from two to four and a quarter. There is currently one near mint Commander copy of Demir Signet for $4.50 on TCG Player. Um, if you, there are three printings of this card. There's Commander, Arch Enemy, and the original Ravnica printing. So there's one copy of the Commander edition. There are zero near-mint copies of the Arch Enemy edition, 
and there is less than a page of the Ravnica edition. But what's funny is that, you know, there's there's no arch enemies. The commander one is four fifty, but then the Ravnica one is actually pretty cheap. Uh, I'm seeing you can pick them up for a dollar seventy five. But again, there's only a page of these. Uh, and I see a Nearmint foil at $10, which also seems actually really low to me. Um, so, you know, I'm only looking at TCG Player right now. I don't have other inventories up, but it seems like like the demand for this is probably pretty good if there are no Arch Enemy Commander versions making it to TCG Player. Uh, so, you know, I'm inclined to think that we could see the Ravnica one fall pretty soon here. Yeah, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that there may be low inventory, but... At- and these can't be easily printed into standard because of there's the <clears throat> the guilds that they reference, but they can definitely be printed in Modern Masters 2017, um, and they can certainly show up in future commander sets. So um, not the kind of thing you want to be sitting on for a long time, um, but great if you've got a bunch of them sitting around in bulk and you feel like you can unload them. Problem with these kind of cards is it's usually pretty hard to unload them in fours, uh, and selling $2 cards individually is not something that gets my motor running. No, I, and I think you're right on all of this. Is one you could see the price on this move up to six bucks a piece. If, you know, theoretically that's possible, but you it is reprintable in every single non-standard set that shows up. So you're going to be looking over your shoulder constantly. And at six bucks, four bucks, three bucks, nobody's buying a playset. You know, if they're ten cents, a quarter, even fifty cents, I mean, you might buy a playset just to have the playset. But at four dollars, no one's going to bother with that. They're going to buy one. So now, like you're making two dollars and change on each one of these. Uh, if you're lucky and you're trying to get rid of them fast enough to not get burned by a reprint, so this is this is like uh, I don't know. There's no good. There's no good way to interact with this card unless maybe you're a vendor or you're buy listing to vendors type of thing. Yeah, and I'm seeing I, I'm seeing dozens of copies of the the Ravnica version. It's not like they're in short supply. Um, it looks no. like <clears throat> it looks like somebody <clears throat> mopped up the other two. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just way too deep for me to care about this card. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's certainly uh, an, an unique situation. Uh, okay, what's next for us? So we got sudden shock foils moving from three fifty to seven fifty. Uh, that's a four dollar gain, or about one hundred and fourteen percent. Um, this card sees occasional play uh, in modern. Um, it's good for shutting down situations um, that you don't want to be responded to because it has um, the ability to shut down the stack, right? Yes. Yep. Just nope. Nothing else gets to happen. Although it doesn't prevent triggered abilities, which can sometimes be quite frustrating. Right. So, I mean, we've seen it in just lately in uh, an uptick from Titan Shift. Uh, decks that are running Primeval, Titan, and Scapeshift. Uh, Valakut Breach variations that um, are using Primeval, Titan, and Through the Breach. And you often see Sudden Shock as like a two-of in the sideboard kind of thing in, in both of those decks. Yep. Uh, yeah, I... I... I mean, I guess that makes sense. I was wondering when we put this on the list, I'm like, where exactly is Sudden Shock coming from? Because it's a nifty card, but you don't see too much of it. I've seen, in fact, I feel like I've seen more Tarfire recently than Sudden Shock. Yeah, fair. I mean, fair enough. And as in sideboard cards, given uh, take it from somebody who went too deep on Stony Silence, uh, are not really where you want to be. So if you got Foil Sudden Shocks sitting around um, from their Modern Masters printing, now would be a good time to be unloading. Yeah, yeah, this is, again, not a card I'm eager to have any copies of or be buying up. Um, okay, wrapping up the week of, apparently this is like the week of weird, uncommon, corner uncommons, uh, is Noxious Revival. Uh, non-foils went from $1.80 to 4 bucks. 
Uh, I am looking at a TCG player right now. I'm seeing the cheapest copy shipped is $4. Um, <clears throat> so there's definitely, uh, and the, the market price has moved up to three fifty. So definitely a, a real move on this card. People are paying somewhat of a real price for it. Um, this is, I believe, mostly attributable to Cheerios. Um, this is kind of like the fifth copy of Retract in the deck. Um, and we also see it pop up in Gorio's Vengeance and a few other places. Um, it, it's sort of like a free instant green. It's not a draw spell. It's more, it's like uh, maybe a, it's a weird tutor. It's like a free spell that tutors from your graveyard. Um, but 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 powerful in the right shell. Uh, so again, the, the the price has moved up into the close to the four dollar range. There aren't many of them either. Uh, one, you know, there's uh, I don't know fifty copies across ten vendors right now. Um, but you know that wouldn't take too long to to sell out. My concern here is again Modern Masters three. This is an eminently reprintable, um, uh, uncommon. And the new the Modern Masters 3 does incorporate Scars of Mirrodin. Uh, so this is, right? Am I, am I doing that math right? Well, it certainly, it, it certainly could. The, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's Innistrad, and, Innistrad and Scars of Mirrodin are the two sets, to get, two sets to get added, right? Like everyone thinks about Innistrad, but everyone forgets that Scars of Mirrodin is on the table too. No, Scars of Mirrodin was already on the table because Mox yeah, yeah. was printed in Modern Masters 2. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, oh, it's that, Ravnica. Ravnica is the other set that gets added that everyone keeps kind of overlooking. Yeah, and I would argue um, that because we got Phyrexian mana last time, we may not get it this time. Um, it's not the kind of thing that they're going to print over and over again unless it's a top priority. So I agree that Noxious Revival can show up again at some point in the future. Um, it could end up in Modern Masters 3, but it doesn't really seem all that likely given its Phyrexian mana status. Um, and I don't think it was really on their radar. There were certainly better targets. My guess is we don't see it this time around. Um, and the the play pattern in Modern is not compelling enough yet Um uh, for me to be excited about the card or even be looking, uh, assuming that I'm going to be able to unload play sets. It looks like it's played sporadically. These decks are not necessarily going to be at top tables for a long period of time. Um, they may end up being medicals that only last three to six months. Um, so uh, definitely the kind of card I'd be happy to trade out of this week at, at my LGS and into something that's a little more exciting. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Again, uncommons just sort of generally make me uneasy. <clears throat> So let's talk about some cards we are excited about this week. Uh, what's your for- first pick on the cards to watch? Uh, well, uh, so I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the Amonkhet art, uh, but we got a little bit of a snippet, and it kind of told us a couple things. The first is that I can basically guarantee you that gods are back. Um, you know, we saw five Egyptian figures um, in very similar framing and stature as the Theros gods originally. Um, and we know that uh, Egyptian culture, you know, back in whatever time period is that we're going back to, um, definitely had gods as a major part of their their culture. Um, so we're seeing the return of these five gods, but one of them is a snake. Um, and snakes also feel kind of at home in an Egyptian culture. I'm saying this, by the way, as somebody who has no, no, no real historical perspective on Egyptian culture. It's just like, you know, the, the, the media I have consumed tells me that snakes are part of part of Egypt, right? You've got the, the asp that comes out of the wicker basket and all that type of thing. I mean, um, after, after a couple of beers, I could buy you as a, you know, poor man's cable Indiana Jones or something. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> um, but in any case, we're seeing snakes. 
Um, which tells me that there's a pretty good chance we're going to have a snake tribal or at least a sub snake tribal. Um, I think winding constrictor could be a pretty good plant for that too. You know, I, I've talked before about how I think that card is definitely, well, actually, I don't know if I've talked about it on this cast, but I think winding constrictor is a setup, uh, for additional stuff coming in the future. And the fact that it's a snake is not a mistake. Um, which kind of, kind of adds another slight layer to this theory. So knowing that we're probably getting snakes back, I went back and dug up some cards to see what's out there. And the first thing I like is to share the anointed. He is one of the legendary snakes. Uh, I mean, I guess they're all legendary from champions of Kamigawa. Um, he gives all snakes plus two, plus two. So real good buff. And he also turns them all into a Fidian, which is you draw a card. If you deal damage with them, it's actually better than a Fidian. It's what, uh, the John Finkel, invitation child mage infiltrator like you draw the card when you deal damage you don't have to give up damp um give up the damage as well so it's a really good it's a powerful card either as a snake commander or in a snake edh deck supply is real low um you know there's not i've checked a lot of websites there's not a lot of copies out there right now they're available around three dollars depending on where you look you might pay about a dollar more or less depending on where you catch them uh but i mean if if snakes show up and there's a, there's any sort of a real tribal theme if people hook into this i mean this is a ten dollar card it's ancient there you know it's from champion kamigawa there's no supply out there um and it, it's actually useful yeah, so I have a, a snake casual deck stashed away somewhere that revolves around Sasuke's Summons, which was a card out of, I believe, uh, Betrayers of Kamigawa. It's a sorcery for two and a green, and you put two 1-1 one, one green snake creature tokens into play. And then the second part of the card is, whenever a non-token snake comes into play under your control, you may return Sasuke's Summons from your graveyard to your hand. Um, so this is a repeatable... Uh, snake token generator that uh, is probably a target as well if if Sashiro ends up being something that people are chasing after. I'm not entirely convinced that snakes are a compelling enough tribe that people are going to be running around trying to build decks with them, but I guess that largely depends on how cool and sexy the snakes are in uh, Amonkhet. Um, it's also worth pointing out that people have picked up on the fact that it looks like Amonkhet is going to feature minus one, minus one counters. Um, in direct opposition to all the plus one, plus one counters we've been getting lately. Um, some people have uh, theorized that that means we're going to see poison return. I find that very hard to believe. Um, it doesn't seem like one of the uh, mechanics that Wizards uh, wants back on the table in Standard. Um, but I guess we'll see how that plays out. Sure. I, I The summons card, I think, is a good point. You know, I had a list of, of snake-themed cards that I had to choose from. Uh, but I think that's another good one. I, I, I don't know how to feel, I feel about it. In fact, I mean, I could see poison in an Egyptian setting, but, you know, we know of it as a Phyrexian thing. Uh, but I mean, I guess if Nickel Bulls is there, he could have brought us back. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but again, Wine Constrictor certainly set ups, in fact, as being around, but it doesn't guarantee it. Um, but yeah. Okay, so what did you got for us? There's a total of 12 foil Sasuke summons left on TCG Player. Is it, is it that many? I'm surprised it's that many. I mean, this was a common. So, uh, oh, so it's an uncommon. Summons, uncommon. summons. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Sure of the Anointed. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, both. We'll see how this whole snake thing plays out. I'm not actually 100% convinced that we're getting gods. Um,. The, the way that they were framed seemed less dramatic and less majestic than um, the Theros gods, and it left me wondering whether those images were of priests for um, gods that are not uh, actually in play, and that it, whether it's possible that um, Bolas actually showed up on the plane, destroyed all the gods, and maybe one of the things that Gatewatch is going to do is track them down, um, befriend them, and then oust Bolas from the plane. 
or knocked the gods out of their power and just turned them into creatures or something. Or like put them into slumber or something and the Gatewatch has to rouse them and put them back on the warpath. Who knows? We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I, I should say, you know, this is all speculation. And I mean, this is even speculative for speculation. Like, it's definitely, um, I'm not, none of this is hard and fast, right? Like, I'm just kind of taking shots. <laughs> Funny thing is, my, my next card is also related. We have a snake theme going on. Um, hardened scales foils uh, are something that I called several shows ago at 3 or $4. They're already at 10 so you've already benefited if you got in on the action then. The thing is, at Given the level of play they're suddenly seeing in modern, uh, in the decks with walking ballista, etc., um, at ten dollars they might still be a buy. Um, the demand profile, if it ends up being a semi-permanent uh, four of in modern, and it ends up and, and it continues having the kind of profile it has in casual circles and in frontier and in EDH, etc., um, all of which can make use of the card at various points. Um, and when you consider the fact that it's at least a couple of years away from a reprint, it just got reprinted in non-foil in the commander set in the fall. So foils are going to take a while to show up. Um, you know, probably something like Modern Masters 2019 uh, would be a valid target. Um, we're certainly not going back to Con uh, to Tarkir anytime soon. So, you know, could these $10 foils hit 20 Travis? I don't see why not. I mean, it's a it's a really cool card that is still, I think, just beginning to appear in its utility. Um, you know, it's still trying to. We're only kind of scratching the surface. It's a reasonably new card, and God, there's the inventory is so low. I mean, whether there's one, two, three playsets on TCG Player before you're seventeen dollars. I don't know, man. This is very doubling season esque uh with potential i mean it, it's it's going to go in every single deck that doubling season shows up in i would say and also could potentially be competitive it's not a bad choice well i'll i'll point out that i did talk to jason alt about it at one point and his opinion was you know if you look at edh rec um it doesn't necessarily go in every deck the doubling season does because it's not necessarily as powerful um eh, what does he know <laughs> well, I mean, he's he's looking at EDH Rex Specs, which you referred me to, which I, I looked up, and he's right. It's nowhere near as popular in EDH and Commander as Doubling Season is. However, the profile is broad, and Modern might end up being, you know, as important or more important than the Commander demand would have been, because it's not the kind of card you put in a bunch of different Commander decks. Um, it's very specifically uh, interesting for maybe two or three of the different Commanders that revolve around the plus one, plus one counters. Um, and on that basis... Uh, you know, it's not the kind of thing people are going to buy eight eight copies of like they might Soul Ring. Um, on the other hand, as a four of foil rare in modern, even though it's from a fall set that was only a few years ago, um, you know, I, I think it could hit 20. And and keep in mind, take all of this with a grain of salt, I'm still holding both foil English, German, Japanese copies. I've got lots of this card in foil and non-foil. Um, so I, I can't possibly claim... Uh, no bias, but I am trying to look at the data when I'm evaluating whether this thing can run even further. Sure. No, I think it's I think it's an entirely viable target. I mean, it's it's a, it's a really fresh card, right? Like, give it a couple of years, and uh, I think it'll settle in quite nicely. It's, it's just super low supply for a foil rare that's that uh, you know was only put out a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement on this one. So, what was your other snake? Uh, it's not a snake. 
<laughs> my other uh, my other card this week is uh, keeping with the snake theme is patron of the Orochi, which is a uh, big fat thing. It's a spirit technically. It's eight mana for seven seven with snake offering, uh, and if you can recite the rules text for that without looking it up, uh, kudos to you. You are. I'm guessing the guy who came up with the mechanic can't even do that. Uh, but what that says is if you sacrifice snakes, uh, you can play it as an instant and by sacrificing. So it's a creature. It's snake right? emerge. It's snake emerge, right? So oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's snake emerge. So you it, it gains flash if you sacrifice a snake and then pay the difference between the mana cost of the snake that you sacked and the patron of the Orochi. So it's an 8-mana card, but if you sacrifice a 4-mana snake, you can play this patron for 4-mana at instant speed. Um, and it includes color. But what he does is he's a 7-7 that you tap the patron to untap all forests and green creatures, and you can only do it once per turn. So there's already a very useful theme here in EDH. You know, tap it to untap all your forests and green creatures. If you're playing a heavy green deck, this just is sort of like a mini um, Prophet of Crufix or a Seedborn Mew. So a very similar effect. And if you can find something else that untaps the patron, you just get to keep going. Um, and it then does turn into that. So a little bit more work for cards that are banned. Uh, so definitely a very high power level on Patron of the Orochi. Uh, currently, there are, let me check about less than a page of copy, less than a page on TCG player. Um, call it, so, call it something know. like 40 copies. Yeah, right around in that ballpark. But this, and it's like four to five bucks right now. But keep in mind, this card has, um, you know, there's no additional demand here yet. Uh, and it's already about five bucks. So I think if there's any interest in snake cards, this card skyrockets to the top as a really great payoff for playing snakes. Uh, and I think the price easily doubles, if not more. Again, an ancient legendary creature with a really powerful effect. Uh, I, I'm interested in that. My take on this is that uh, this demand has to come from casual circles. And casual is one of the... Uh, black holes of mtg finance data because there's no site set up um that gives us good uh, uh signposts as to what casual players are buying as of late um all i can do is look at edh rec and see that there are very very few snake themed decks um the ones that do exist and there's only a couple dozen um are built around sachi daughter of sashiro so these snakes better be super good for this card to take a pop yeah, but so you're 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 right. Like right all of this is banking on the fact that we have to see playable interesting snakes in Amonkhet, which I'm not guaranteeing. Um but what I like about both of these cards is the demand is the supply is already so low and they're so old that it really doesn't take much to to push them. You know what I mean? It's not like like so for instance there's also the the one that was printed in I think Commander 2015, he's blue-green, and he's a snake commander, and he's really useful. He gives all your snakes this additional, uh, some additional abilities. Um, but the supply on that is so – the price is really low, but the, price, the supply is so high that I'm not interested because I don't think we can generate enough demand there to move the price of that card meaningfully. But because the supply on these two is just so low that it wouldn't take much. I mean, I have to be honest, as I started, as I thought, started thinking about snakes and poking around, I've kind of been building one in my head. I'm like, this would be kind of cool. A goofy little snake EDH deck. Um, and, you know, I, how many people do you have to, if you get one person in each state that does that, you now clear out, like, the patron of the Orochi inventory. Fair point. And, you know, one of the flashpoints here could be that A, there is a god, and B, it is creature type snake. 
Um, if that's the case and it's an excellent commander, then by all means, then things can go right off the rails. Um, because new commanders, you know, commander players love to latch onto a new commander if it's super sweet and build all over it, um, as we've seen with Atraxa. So, um, you know, it's not impossible. Right. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Tell me that it's not impossible. Uh, all right. So what else have you got for us? So the European arbitrage play of the week um, that I've been making is Mana Drain uh, Judge Foils, which you can pick up uh, all in through you know a select partner of your own um, via uh, Magic Card Market uh, in the EU. You can pick these up somewhere in the like 105 to 115 US uh, area after the shipping to your partner and then whatever... Um, collaborative shipping agreement you've got going with them. And I think the sell, you know, you're already seeing copies of this card in the 140 to 150 range moving. Um, there's not very many left really online. Uh, and, you know, I think that a future price target of 160 or even maybe as high as 180, give it a year or two, um, is not unreasonable for mana drain judge foils that are highly unlikely to see another printing anytime soon. Sure. I think that's a great choice, especially if you're paying less than what they're worth. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the other pick of mine is, you know, another, um, Kaladesh, uh, masterpiece that has been showing signs of inventory draining out of the system much earlier than I was expecting it to. Um, this time we're talking about Hangerback Walker, which is starting to show up in modern lists and is a fixture in, in, uh, vintage lists, um, that make use of colorless big mana. Um, Hangerback Walker uh, MPs are sitting in and around the kind of $40 range. Um, I was picking up some copies last week for about 32 but all of those opportunities are gone now. Um, I, this could easily end up being a $60 card, given how fast they're drying up. Yeah, especially with what we saw with this card, um, you know, showing up in the Eldrazi decks in Modern. Uh, clearly, there's some, some appeal there, uh, which adds a, a whole new vector kind of for this card's interest and or at least validates that as a, as a worthwhile endeavor. So um, I, you know, there's definitely a lot of room on this to move from 40 bucks for sure. I mean, that's pretty low for a, a masterpiece really, especially one that's displayable and wants to be played as a four of. Yeah. And it, and it's fantastic art. I mean, this is one of the cases where the masterpiece art is, is cinematic uh, and significantly better than the original. That is pretty cool looking. Um, okay. So do you have anything else for us before we join our interviewees? Uh, I guess we've got metagame week in review still to cover. Oh, I actually was not going to, I didn't announce that and I wasn't going to do it. Okay. I dropped that link in there just to show you the Harding Skills Affinity deck. That's why I put it in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I was plenty excited to see something very similar to the brew I've been running uh, in Frontier, um, doing well. Uh, it's, impressive to me that hard scales is good enough for modern because i think that 99 percent of pros would have disagreed with that statement when it first came out yeah well you know one mana makes a big difference okay so let's let's pick this up um i just said james is there anything else you want to cover before we get to our interviewees yeah so i guess this week we're skipping over the metagame we can review not a lot of the uh tournament results that we need to get through um and we also want to move on to our next segment uh, uh another big interview that will convince you that we are no longer mtg fast finance but instead mtg super slow but excellent content finance all right so let's jump into our final segment travis we're gonna uh Enjoy the company of uh, a new startup in the Magic Finance uh, arena. Uh, the company is called Cardsphere. Um, it's a new platform for trading Magic the Gathering cards that's currently under active development. 
And uh, today we have two of the co-founders with us. We have Tom Reese, um, who is a senior developer with Cardsphere. Um, and we also have uh, Peter, uh, how do I pronounce your last name, Peter? Tweeg. Um, so Peter Tweeg is also joining us as the Cardsphere economist. Um, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great. So can you guys uh, give our listeners um, a, a brief overview of what Cardsphere is all about, kind of the purpose of the project and uh, the kind of functionality you're going to be offering um, Magic players and financiers in the near future? Sure. This is uh, Tom here. I'll start. Um, the Cardsphere team is comprised of all ex-Puka traders. So we wanted to build a site like Puka Trade, but with some security. And that's why we chose to back our economy with the USD. No fake points, no, no points will ever be created out of thin air. Um, but, but really, we just want to get back to trading like we used to trade on Puka Trade. Okay, so, so when we're talking about um, you know, putting together a you know, updated, better version of Puka Trade, what are the key differentiating factors other than the absence of Puka points that uh, you think make this um, the platform that everybody's waiting for? Um, for me, I, I'm a developer, so I'm biased. But, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to avoid saying the name Puka Trade as I speak, but it's very difficult. But um, I see our competitor uh, as being a, a, a business-led company. Instead, we are a, a developer-led company. Um, the two most active people on the project are myself and uh, Michael Baranov, he's from Canada. Um, he's a Canadian-Russian. He has a really unique and cool accent. But because it's developer-led, all of our decision-making has, has been more about building the best product for our users and uh, iterating quickly, as opposed to, you know, what... What sort of little features do we need to put behind paywalls to keep this business afloat? Um, we've put ourselves into a position where we think that our server costs are going to be low enough that we could have 16 instances of the application running for $500 a month. I mean, we can afford that on our own. We didn't have to do a Kickstarter or anything like that to pay developers. Um, Sure. So let, let, let's take a big step back, though. From the top, the 10,000-foot view, um, I'm a user that trips over Cardsphere on the internet. Um, I'm an active Magic the Gathering player, or maybe I'm interested in MTG Finance. I come to the site, um, I'm checking it out, and what kind of you know tasks or activities might I expect to engage in? You know, what are what's my day-to-day -day like when inter interfacing with Cardsphere? Uh, from the beginning, as you just you just found it, or you've been a member for a while. I've never heard of. Well, I'm going to say I've never heard of Cardsphere before. Somebody says you should check out Cardsphere, and ah, uh, so I'm like, okay, so I visit the web page. You know, what am I? What am I experiencing? What is the purpose of this tool? Um, you know, imagine people who are listening to this who who don't know what this is. Yeah, I, I guess I forget. Um, <laughs> so you, you fall into the project, and you kind of you. It's tough to get those those larger scopes. Definitely. Yeah. So you you would arrive at our site. And, you know, you'd be presented with 
with a, a description to help guide you, but the the gist of it is there are essentially two different ways for you to use it. If you have a whole bunch of bulk uh, rares, uncommons, that you can barely give away to your local card shop or even your friends, um, you can add those cards to your... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my computer just went to sleep. All right, you're going to have to edit that. Have fun. So you can add those cards to... If you have a bunch of bulk, you can add those cards to your halves list, and um, from there, you can start sending them to people that, that may want them. Now, for somebody to receive those cards, they have to have um, currency in the system. And if they do, you, you, know, you make a package of 10 bulk cards at... 75 cents a piece and you're suddenly sending out, you know, 750 and paying 50 cents for a stamp, but I don't think that you could make such a lucrative trade even if you were binder grinding at an event or trying to sell 10 um 75 cent cards to you know, uh, any vendor or shop. Okay, so I guess the key point you're making there is that, as with Puka Trade, this is a push-based instead of a pull-based economy, where because users have added cards to their want list and made a firm commitment to purchase them, um, you can uh, send those cards out to them and be guaranteed to receive the value um, of those cards in full minus some reasonable amount of fees, right? Yeah, so basically, um, Puka Trade is a great starting point, if only because probably a lot of listeners are familiar with Puka Trade and its model. Uh, you go on Puka Trade and you build a wants list, basically, saying, I'm willing to pay some amount for cards. Um, and people can come along, see those wants, and send you the card, move to commit you uh, the card. So that's really our starting point. We think Puka Trade, in a lot of ways, had a very good idea. And initially, it executed it well. Um, there are problems, and maybe we'll get into what those problems were. But that's that's basically the starting point is uh, about setting up a wants list, which we will try to make as easy as possible. Um, you can export a list from Puka Trade or Deckbox and import it onto Cardsphere, and it'll work just fine. Um, importantly, unlike Puka Trade, we do have a price index very similar to Puka Trade's. But we allow you flexibility to uh, offer above or below the market price. Um, my major goal and ambition in this project and just in my involvement in this community in general is I just want a very good market. I want a market that allows for flexibility in pricing, that's low transaction cost, that's very user-friendly. Um, I don't see PukaTrade as the only competitor. I look at sites like TCG Player. Um, you know, they have a lot of different things going on that, you know, there's transaction costs there that are very high. It's kind of hard to get in as a casual seller of cards. I mean, it's different. It's a pull instead of push. Uh, but again, to get back to the point, you can come onto this site and it's very much supposed to be like Puka Trade, where you just list your wants. People can send you wants. You can send wants in order to get, you know, currency on the site. Um and it should be a very simple system where, you know, we're not taking fees out on every transaction. You're just putting up wants. You're, you can adjust the prices. Um, we do have a default price, but you can move up and down if you care about a card a lot. Um, you know, 
and market prices will emerge. I'm an economist. I love market prices. They sell, they satisfy beautiful welfare criteria. Um, and I think it'll be a much smoother system, uh, than who could trade. Right. So, I mean, one of the key advantages I'm hearing in, in that part of the discussion is that, um, you're going to right out the gate support a bid and ask type, uh, economy where you're going to, um, display the market average, um, or the best guess at the current price of a card, but users will be able to, um, bid both above and below, um, and you're planning on letting the market find its own equilibrium in that way. Right. So one thing I want to emphasize is uh, this project is very much guided by feedback from the users. Um, and one thing is we, we don't want to make it difficult for users like to throw them in the deep end and be like, okay, you want these cards? What are you willing to pay? Update your bid list or something like keep it up to date every day. We realize that's difficult. We like the idea of a price index so you can peg to the price index. But you also have some flexibility to go above and below. And what exact features we we have to uh, allow users to really engage in customization to feed, to, to meet their needs? Um, we're having that conversation, and you know we love getting feedback. But you're right; the main idea is you can move up and down. Puka Trade finally implemented a, a bounty system that allows you to offer above the price, but they also have transaction fees involved with that. So Puka Trade is getting a bit more flexible, but it's also introducing transaction fees, which is a bummer. And we're hoping to avoid that entirely. It's something that should be just basic to a well-functioning market. So I'm going to jump in here. What what strikes me um, when I look at this as, as a really key differentiating factor here, more than uh, really any of the other usability functions because even if a website is missing the ability to to do bid and ask and, and change that you know that's that's relatively adjustable um you know that could be added in on, on on any platform but what you guys are doing that's very distinct is you're tying this to um essentially cash right like this is the, because you have this ability to cash out you know, according to your website cash out via paypal um which is I mean, that's a really big, that is a fundamental, humongous change from the models that we already see. Um, so, you know, how did you guys decide to land on that? And, um, you know, what does that mean for your users? I mean, to me, it shouldn't have been a big shift. It should have been the assumption. Um, every every site, Puka Trade should have done this a long time ago. Um, it's It's really about credibility and trust in the economy. And again, you know, we don't want to trash Puka trade like gratuitously, but to some extent, it serves as an illustrative tragedy of what happens when you don't ground your currency in a, in, in a value that people can trust in. Um, Puka trade created currency because it was free for them to do so. So they want to market the site, you know, get some visibility. You know, we'll pay you 20,000 Puka points to plug us. Well, that expands the currency supply, um, devalues the currency. And so what happened is the economy kind of spiraled out of control, like hyperinflation. I mean, it's a more complicated narrative. I've written on this, but this is the real tragedy of Puka trade that's, that's caused a lot of difficulty and caused the economy to ground to the halt. But at any time, they could still do it. At any time, they could have said, look, 
we're going to back the currency. We're not going to let it slide further. We're going to promise you if you want to cash out, if you want to take 100 Puka points or on Card Spirit, if you want to take 100 points um, and convert it uh, to cash, we will do that. We will have a currency peg. And this is the core of the site. This is the core promise that we're not going to move away from, that if you get points, you know, as long as the site exists, you will be able to cash those points out. Um, and we will do as much as we can in order to be transparent about our ability to do that. You know, we're not going to do like fractional reserve where, you know, we take your money and, you know, invest it in uh, mortgages or something and then tell you, oh, we don't have it anymore. Um, we, we care a lot about this core concept of we have, you've trusted us with your money, we have it, and you can cash out at any time. If you don't trust us, you know, send out your cards, get currency on the site, and cash it out right away. Stuff that money under your uh, mattress if you want. Um, you don't have to trust us, uh, but we will maintain that peg, and that is important, and it shouldn't be revolutionary, and it's sad that it is. Um, but we do think it's extremely uh, valuable. Right. So, I mean, let, let me just uh, provide a, a brief synopsis of, you know, why that's even possible inside your system. Because the, the reality here is you're not offering an alternative currency or pegging anything to the U.S. dollar. You're basically just using the U.S. dollar. You're you're getting away with alternate cur- – getting doing away with alternate currencies completely inside your platform because when somebody commits to putting something on their want list – they have to stock their account with real money, right? That's that's what the where the cash flows from when somebody sends out a card, right? Well, they have to stock their account with points, basically. So we are using a site currency. So you buy into the site currency, you have a balance, but you can cash out that balance back into dollars at any time. Okay, but because but because it's pegged at one to one. Um, it is essentially a placeholder for U.S. currency in the same way that numbers inside my PayPal account, um, you know, could be described as an alternate currency, PayPal dollars or whatever, but really they're U.S. dollars. Precisely. And it's important. The reason we're doing that is because if we had people transferring, you know, if we cut out the uh, site currency entirely and we were having people transfer cash directly to each other, then there'd be transaction fees associated with that. And we're hoping to avoid those that, you know, if you build a balance and you're sending cards back and forth and your balance goes up and down, um, you know, there will be a zero transaction fee or maybe a very nominal transaction fee associated with that. Um, but that's a function of what the site currency allows. Okay, so let's talk specifics like um, in the scenario where I am a potential buyer on the site who is pre-committing to a want list. Let's say that my want list contains $100 card. I'm trying to track down a masterpiece um, soul ring or something, current market price, 140 US. When I add that to my want list, do I have to put, do I have to commit the funds pre-purchase the product, the card right at that moment? Uh, so under the currency, uh, under the current system, you would. It's similar to Puka Trade, where if you want your want, if you want your want to be displayed, you need the balance to pay for it. But we've realized that this isn't 100% necessary even. Like, you know, we are considering more flexible systems. I personally like the idea, you know, the team's still discussing this, but I personally like the idea that, you know, maybe you don't need $100 of currency on the site. Maybe you will display your want, and if someone expresses, hey, I want to send this to you for 10,000 points or something, 
we'll send you an email and you'll be able to buy 10,000 points and have that trade locked in at the same time. So at the moment, it is like Puka Trade in that you need to be somewhat invested in the site or you need to have acquired currency one way or the other in order to have cards sent to you. But that isn't 100% necessary. And we might even relax that assumption because we can't. Okay, so hold on. Let me, let me think about that for a second. So what you're saying is I could go to cards here and sign up, put no money in the system and go, I would really like to pick up uh, some card, um, the Soul Ring and put soul ring on my want list. Now, without putting a single dollar in, somebody can see that I want that and go, I will send him the soul ring. And they click send and it says like, oh, they have 20, you know, I as the receiver of 24 hours to confirm or something. And then I can see that pop up and I'll go, hey, someone committed this to you. Do you want to buy this card and, you know, pay, put the money in to have this card sent to you and I can choose to do it there. And then I guess the, the advantage to this as opposed to just going to TCG player and buying it, um, is that I could add that soul ring to my want list and then from there start sending out cards through the system to accumulate currency within card sphere and then whenever someone happens to offer me to sell the card to me, I can then cover the difference. Well, let me just say again, we, we're thinking about this system. So what you described is a possibility. I think Tom and the others will kill me if I act like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm promising work that they would have to do ultimately, but I think this is something that potentially our system would allow us to do. But for the moment, you know, that's not the plan. But again, uh, we do have it in, in mind because we're very attentive to the notion that we want to make it as easy as possible to get on the site and start using it. And if that's something that's necessary, then it's certainly, I think, something we'll be talking about. Right. And so in that scenario, we're talking about a tiered presentation system for the opportunities to sell through as a seller where I'm looking at a list, and in the similar way to currently on Puka Trade, people that are promoting um, their trades, mean, meaning that they are um, offering more than current market value um, to, to get a card sent to them, are put at the top of the list in terms of the people that the, the sellers will, potential sellers will consider first. And in the same way, anybody who had fully committed their funds already to the system is obviously going to get priority over people who are tentatively committed and, and want to be able to sign off at the last moment. That would presumably presumably be how it works, that people who have the currency on hand would be preferable uh, from the sender's perspective. But, you know, maybe the person without the currency is offering 25% more. So you're willing to uh, give them a shot. Um, sure. Think, so various yeah. filters could be put into play to see, you know, um, to gauge level of commit commitment versus total offer, et cetera. And it may also be a matter of volume, right? Like a guy like me might be offering less than average, but I'll take 20 or 30 copies. Precisely. Okay. That, now, that, now that presents an interesting dynamic that it doesn't currently exist really on any platform in the ability for James to say, I want one soul ring uh, and I will pay 140 for it. But I can show up and go, uh, you know what, I would like 10 of them. And if you'll send me 10, I will give you 125 each. Um, and then, you know, kind of to to facilitate large transactions. Because right now, like I can go to TCG Player and buy 100 copies of Breaking and Entering, but there's no negotiation on that price, right? Like I can't, I'm not getting a discount for the bulk for, the, for doing all of that. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic if that's available. Maybe Tom can speak to that. Like, is that something that's in the system now that you guys have taught, you know, do you know where you are on that? 
Yeah, so it is not in the system yet. The system will launch and it'll be, as Peter described, it'll be much like uh, Puka Trade in that you have to have the funds in your account. But this is, again, a differentiator for Cardsphere, I believe, is I, I hope to prove to anyone who gives it a shot our ability to iterate quickly and change change these sorts of things for the better. Like we're we're not going to be locked into the same exact thing forever if it if it's not best for our users. Well, Peter's already committed you guys to like six months of improvements in the last twenty <laughs> minutes. So this was yeah. something yesterday. I was like, hey, you know, people are concerned that you know I don't want to have to buy a hundred dollars of site currency to have my wants displayed. And I, you know, I just threw into chat, like, you know, there, there might be a way to avoid that problem. Um, but it, it illustrates that, you know, it's a community driven by feedback. Um, what was raised about this notion of having kind of differentiated prices on multiple copies, um, I don't think that's going to be there, you know, initially. But it's certainly um, something we're going to keep iterating on the site. And this is one thing is the development of Cardsphere has largely been public. You can see, you know, the staging of the site right now. Um, and, you know, that, that openness and communication is very important to what we want to promise the users. Uh, if not at the time of launching, like, you know, we, we want to get something out that works and not necessarily something that has 200% of every feature and every customization and option. Uh, we're going to launch at some point with some feature set but we're going to keep working on it to satisfy users and address these very natural wants. It's understandable why these things are desirable. And yeah, um, if you follow the trajectory of our progress, hopefully you'll be assured that that trajectory will keep moving in positive directions and satisfy uh, these users that yeah, have these needs. Sure. I mean, with any tech startup, you, you're you going to launch with a minimum viable product, some core set of functionality that um, attempts to address the market in the best possible method while leaving the door open for, you know, execution of either agile or lean development principles so that you can continue to iterate and, and uh, you know, launch the most important features to the current user base to keep moving in the right direction. So, I mean, that's certainly what I think the users want to hear. I mean, one of the concerns I have, though, is that, you know, we alluded to um, some of the Im- early impact that Puka Points had on Puka Trade, um, in the sense that in making the decision to give points away for free when people uh, registered with the site, because even the you know the most bare bones accounts got basically free do- five dollars worth of points for free. Um, you know, not to mention you know the the media partners and and teammates that that may have been given large. Um, parcels of points um, as a way to start uh, market velocity. Um, there was also these free points that were giving to everybody, and and down the road that ends up contributing to a spiral of inflation, as you as you referenced and as I've written about in the past. That's um, caused all sorts of problems. Ended up devaluing the points to the to the point where people pretty much have to offer double or triple the value of a card at this point to get something sent to them. Um, and a lot of the trading that's going on is now happening on Discord over there, and it's a, almost entirely reciprocal, meaning that nobody's people are willing to send out you know high value targets, but only if they're getting a high value target in return, which is really you know undercutting the value of the site to guys like me who just want to send out low value cards and turn them into high value cards. So 
one of the things I, I'm considering here is that, you know, without the Puka Point, um, you know, inflationary spiral being kicked off by the, you know, free money that you give away to people to get them to use the site, how are you going to manage to kickstart, say, 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 users to all, um, you know, uh, commit to using the site actively enough that, you know, the economy... Um, hits critical mass and is in, and you're capable of rolling forward. What's the plan to get this thing off the ground? Yeah, so I'll start from the the founder's perspective, and this isn't uh, going to pass the economics test. But uh, so far, as founders, we've spent a uh, hundred dollars on server costs so far. So we have not spent any money on advertising, anything like that. We have agreed to, instead of spending money on a Facebook ad or a Twitter ad, we're going to invest our own money into the system, fill our want lists up with cards that we, we may not even want, and we're going to send out cards that we may not even want to send out, um, and to, to try to distribute those points. So um, that is... is easy to beat. I mean, if, if I, if I drop in 500 and the other developer drops in 500, there's a grand, one of you guys could probably eat up that and send us every single one of those cards cash out. Then we're right back to square zero. I acknowledge this and I, you know, I don't really know a way around it. I can just point to multiple users on our, on our Reddit that are interested in investing from the beginning and we are launching in such a way that we have, um, we're calling it the Genesis wave. And it, it, it's like, it's going to be a sort of a hand-picked, volunteer-based uh, selection of traders that are of different types. Um, and by that I mean maybe maybe a, uh, 20% that are willing to invest $20. Another 20% that are willing to invest between $50 or $100. And then I, um, down here in, in Texas, I have a, a best friend that I work with that owns a card shop. So he's going to let me send out his cards for him. Little things like that are little tricks that I, as a developer, am trying to play to, to kickstart this thing. But I am not uh, well-versed in economics. Yeah, so I'll add, um, yeah... In terms of passing the economics test, uh, it, it isn't a long-term viable strategy uh, to kind of try to seed the site that way. But I just emphasize again this notion that we're trying to make it very easy to switch. Um, we do have a community of active, interested users, um, largely people who are you know disaffected with Puka Trade, um, who want a site where you know they could send out cards uh, that they well you can send out cards but receive cards is the problem i guess on puka trade right now without going on messaging people on discord or a chat room or something like that um we're trying to offer a new platform a fresh start for people who kind of remember how it used to be um you know there's a bit of nostalgia goggles there but really it's about having a good product uh, low cost of getting involved um, and like I said, we have ideas for making those costs very, very minimal. Um, but 
Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this question of like, is there a marketing strategy? How do we dump money into it? Like we haven't really considered that we're putting the product first right now. And we're hoping it's too easy to say like, Oh, word of mouth will get out. It'll be awesome. And things will take off. Like, obviously that's, that's too optimistic to just be able to say that. Um, but we really do believe that the product will speak for itself, you know, to a large extent. And from there, if we need to make further investments, then we'll be looking at that. Well, I mean, when you talked about a group of users that would be handpicked to invest a certain amount of money, you said 20 or 50 or 100. Um, you're not talking about investment. You're talking about them buying credit so that people can send them cards, right? Are those... Uh, is is that a difference uh, between those two things? Is there well, a difference? It, sure. I mean, investment means that they're purchasing stock. Um, <laughs> okay. And, yeah, we're not and, selling equity for yeah, sure. Yeah, right. so, that, that, that makes them part of your cap table, which is a whole different animal. What we need, I mean, there is this notion, like, there is a network effect on the site. I don't think it's, like, we're not, like, a clothing brand where we need, you know, uh, Paris Hilton to, like, you know, uh, be on the site or LSV or something. Clearly, you know, they're, they're pretty much the same thing, different communities. Uh, but we, we don't need them to be like brand leaders or, or something like that. We, we want to believe that, um, you know, the site could survive with a few hundred users. All you need is enough people who have their wants available and you can send them. You can see the wants. You can see, oh, this is a good price. I'll get the currency. Maybe I'll cash it out if I don't want it, or maybe I'll keep it and, you know, have people send me cards. So I think uh, the goal is to start off the economy with, like, interested interested parties. And when we say investment, it means that they're going to buy some of the currency, have the want list that other people can see and be attracted to. Um, but, of course, they can cash out as well. Right. So let's talk about that cash out portion. Um, because obviously the you know people are going to start posting on Reddit um, comparisons of fees between you and other potential platforms to try to figure out where the advantages or disadvantages lie. So can we get specific and granular about um, I put a hundred dollars worth of quote unquote credit inside the system, and um, you know I get sent a card, and that seller um, then wants to cash out. So what kind of fees are they facing? So I believe the current plan is basically, you know, uh, if you buy in, you get $100 of currency and you immediately turn around to cash it out, you'll get $90 of that currency back. A lot of that will just be basically, you know, payment processing fees. Um, and the rest of that is how we keep the servers on. You know, that's just our estimate of what's necessary. Um, we're not, you know... Presumably, maybe I don't think Tom's looking to become a millionaire. I don't. I don't really have equity at the moment. Uh, but you know, so we don't. We don't have kind of grand financial ambitions. This is a number that's just kind of seen as what's necessary to keep the site alive. But also, the site's very cheap. So, um, but it shouldn't be thought of as a ten percent transaction fee. This is something I've seen some people act like. Oh, you know, I can, you know, send out a card and get ninety percent of TCG mid, assuming you know, the index is like close to TCG mid, like in some sense, that's true. But, you know, if you keep your money within the system or you never purchase money, like there's basically no transaction fees um, involved, which is nice. But uh, so the transaction fees are only at one point. There's only one point at which there's a fee. 
Uh, I mean, that's that that's great, Peter. That's great for people who want to really use it for sort of that that golden ideal, which is just trading cards, basically, you know, a, a, a worldwide binder grind type of thing where they trade stuff but there is undoubtedly uh going to be people like if it's not james and i it's going to be somebody who looks at this as another venue to essentially sell cards um because you know for someone like me i sell cards on tcg player all the time and uh if and i do it there because i get a better bang for my buck if if it were more profitable to to send cards on puka trade and then sell the points i would do that but it's not uh but if card spirit you know, really gets off the ground. And I'm going to be looking at this and going, hey, if I can just push all these cards out to people instead of having to wait for them to buy them, and then I can sell all those points for, you know, at 10%, uh, I mean, that to me becomes a a legitimate strategy for moving inventory, um, you know, that, that sort of is a very different use case than somebody who wants to trade for EDH decks. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't see how your model... Uh, that's definitely going to happen, <laughs> whether you intend it, people to do that or not. Like that's going to be a way that it gets looked at. No, well, sure, this, sure. This, like I am perfectly sympathetic to the notion. Like, you know, I'm an economist. I love the notion of stores. I mean, I personally, I have no aversion to people who are just out it to make a buck. Um, and you know, I imagine that those opportunities will exist. I push back a little bit at the notion that I mean, if you want to think of it as a first pass of making ninety percent of TCG mid. Like, that would be, I think, to a lot of binder grinders, that would be very appealing. You know, TCG takes off more in fees than that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, for my, my, my first interjection would be that you're not going to get away with using the, you know, uh, pegging your index to TCG mid. Um, the perception of value in the Magic Player community is pretty clearly uh, related to TCG low near mint. Um, and I would think that that would be the only index you would get away with, um, because if the if a soul ring is going for mid 140, but I can get it for 125 on TCG, no one's going to want to send it out. Um, uh, no one's going to want to cough up uh, cash, especially since it's cash we're talking about and not cards um, to get the points right. Um, yeah. To um, so for sure, like that's that's one thing. Again, that's what part of the reason I resist the notion 90% of TCG mid is there might be an index that, you know, pegs to something like that. But in reality, the market price of the cards could be lower, could be higher. Um, probably going to be lower in most instances once the uh, kind of market takes off. Um, but I imagine that those, the people who found value on Puka Trade, um, you know, the stores, the binder grinders, um, unless you were basically taking advantage of rigidities in Puka Trade, I'd like to imagine that whatever golden age of Puka trade existed um, would be transferable, whatever, not scheme, that's a negative word, but, you know, whatever whatever idea you had that was generating profit should be transferable. Unless you were, like, one of those people who are like, and, and this is me, honestly, like, I'm going to run a script, it's going to reload my page, and when a bulk card comes up, you know, I can get 30 cents for it on Puka trade, which is, like, way better than TCG. Like, if you're that person... You know, that that's a world that may never exist again. Um, but for everyone else, I think uh, those opportunities should arise again. So I, I can't mean, to everyone. Uh, that, yeah. I'd also like to underscore that it seems like there's a, an interesting potential conflict here, right? Because um, an ideal version of the system from your perspective economically, because you're, you, you said that you're only taking your cut, 
you know, there's no there's no monthly memberships, right? You're only taking a cut when people cash out their fee, cash out their points back to U.S. dollars. Uh, no, there will be monthly memberships that are not required, but the features that come with it will actually be worth it. Um, we do not have those done, and we're not going to launch with them because, like you said, minimum viable product. We're trying to get it out the door. But uh, a feature that I think is worth paying for is something like automatic trading. Um, you set criteria and the system will accept trades for you instead of you having to refresh a send page and look for the most optimal package. You just say, hey, send out any package that's above $5 and contains uh, five cards or something like that to anyone in the U.S., Okay. Automatic matching is certainly uh, an appealing concept, also extremely complex. Um, That's something we we have done some work on um, on my own project, uh, shelflife.net, which is a uh, similar kind of platform for toys. Um, The... I mean, one of the things, uh, though, that if you're going to have monthly packages, um, are those monthly packages going to uh, come with reduced fees for um, cashing out? Or are we going to, are you double dipping? Uh, cashing, so, so, so Peter keeps mentioning that there, there may not be a transaction fee, but in reality, there probably will be a, a fee per transaction, but it's it's going to be 1%, 2%, 3% or less. So if you're a premium member, it'll probably be 1%. If you're, if you're a free member, it may be 2%, but you know, on a $10 card, 2% is, is not much. So, okay. So let's, let's put that in concrete terms. I'm selling a hundred dollar card. I'm keeping the points in the system. Um, uh, somebody bought a hundred dollars worth of credit. They said they want the hundred dollar card. I agree to send it to them. They confirm, um, uh, or if they, I guess if their credits are in the system, they didn't have to confirm. If, if they didn't pre-purchase the credit, they would have to confirm based on the model we talked about earlier. Um, and then you're going to leave them with $98 worth of credit. Um, so you're going to take a small transaction fee if they're a free user. And then if they cash out, they're going to lose another 10%? That, that, that's right. Yep. Okay. If you send them a $100 card, they'll get $98. As long as they keep it, they have that $98. If they cash out, they'll lose 10% of that. And is the 10% based on the original 100 or is it based on the value of whatever they cash out? Uh, whatever they cash out. Okay. And the 10%, uh, so the, the number helps cover processing fees in. So when you cash in, if you give us, or say I'm on the other end of the example you just gave, I'm the guy who has the $100. I pay $100 and Cardsphere temporarily absorbs that uh, processing fee from whatever payment processor we end up going with. Um, we are still investigating those, but does that make sense? So you, you don't give us a hundred dollars or $105 to, to get a hundred dollars. You say, I want to give a hundred, you get a hundred. Right. So what you're saying is you're absorbing the transaction fee from the pay- payment processing, whether it's PayPal or credit card or what have you, which is say 1.5, to 3%, depending on your total volume and who you're working with. And you're going to recoup that when they cash out later. Correct. So the interesting, you know, dynamic tension I was referring to earlier is that a system where nobody ever cashes out um, is best for the users in terms of the fees they incur. Um, But if no one ever cashes out, then you never get your 10% and you're not going to be able to survive. Um, That people, people keep saying that. So 
<laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I, I truly believe that uh, I could afford to pay hosting costs for this site given the technology stack that we have chosen and the programming practices that we have employed. I could pay it for the next for the rest of my life. I mean, <laughs> sure, but now I, we're talking. Yeah, but now you're talking about a not-for-profit <laughs> that you're running for the magic community to the benefit of all, which I'm sure we would all, you know, be ecstatic about. But I'm on board with this plan, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's a very different discussion than saying that you're going to run a for-profit business that can afford to achieve economies of scale and scope and service, you know, millions of transactions per year. I mean, no, no one's going to fault you for wanting this to be a profitable venture, right? Like, yeah, exactly. You know, if you want to run a business, that's totally fine. <laughs> as, as you know, what what we're, we're what I think our listeners are concerned with, and certainly what we're concerned with, is um, that whatever price we're paying to use the system. Um, and I was never one that thought that the numbers that Puka Trade charged me were out of whack, given the value I was getting up front. I mean, in the first year of Puka, my Puka Trade activity, I was getting foreign black-bordered volcanic islands sent to me and, you know, Mishra's workshops and shit. And, um, you know, those were glory days. <laughs> that was fantastic to be able to turn a bunch of 5 and $10 cards uh, into something significant um, that became a real asset. Um those days are long gone. If you can bring them back, then, you know, I'm certainly willing to redirect, um, you know, a monthly reasonable monthly membership and whatever fee structure makes sense when comparing you to other platforms. Um, and I believe many, many listeners would as well. My concern, though, to circle back is still that I'm not clear um, that it's not clear to me that you have a great answer for how you're going to kickstart this economy. Yeah, that's also the one thing I was still wondering about, because I, I can picture this in such a way that. Two years from now, whatever, you know, the system is working and it's in place and there's a bunch of people and there's a bunch of points and it functions. But I'm really wondering how you go from today to that point. Do So from a developer perspective, is it uh, – again, I'm not a businessman. Is it is it common for startups to know this? Did, uh, did Twitter start out and know that they would become the giant they are just by letting people share 140 characters? Uh, did did Zuckerberg know that when he he coded on Facebook? I mean, no. These are I mean, they, tough questions to answer. Sure. I mean, I I think those comparisons are a little bit unfair because those are um, uh, organizations that, uh, through a combination of luck and talent, managed to um, found um, you know culture shifting products. Um, and there are many other teams that tried similar things and fell flat on their face. Um, and, and, and you, to look at only the successful ones and to say, you know, they didn't know where they were headed, so we'll be fine, um, ignores the fact that 99% of startups fail. So yeah, the, I think we're not going to be able, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of skeptical, you know, narratives can be warranted. Um, you know, I, I would be a liar if I came on and said, oh, you know, we, we, what, what kind of projection could we possibly have that said, we already have like a first round of venture funding done and blah, blah, blah. Like we believe that the demand is out there. Uh, we believe that we will launch a product and have kind of, uh, you know, it'll be self-standing as something useful, something to easily get into. Um, people who are skeptical are free to be skeptical. Um, we want it to be, even if you are skeptical, not hard to uh, get in. My question, and I think this is partly James too, is not about public perception. It's not about, you know, do the users have faith or whatever. It's, it's a question of mechanics. It's, ta it's tactical. 
yeah, you're going to have, you know, <clears throat> whether it's a 50 or 100 or 400, 1,000 people that you initially deploy this product to. None of them have any funds in the system when you hand over the keys to those accounts. So how are, how are you moving the money? Like, how are you getting money into those accounts? Is there just the assumption that those first, you know, 400 people are all dumping 100 bucks a piece into the system and then running from there? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, is... Does that strike you as unreasonable? You can cash out, so, right? So, so let me let me explain why I think that that may end up troublesome. Um, the people that are most motivated to jump to come on board are the one power sellers on Puka Trade who continue to make. I mean, let's, let's be clear: there are some people making very good money on Puka Trade, and the reason that they're doing that is because they have a, made a long-term commitment to the platform to send out cards constantly. And it's been clear to me that the algorithms are favoring uh, people that are um, sending out more. Um, they get more back. So people who are sending all the time are being favored um, in terms of being, uh, you know, getting reciprocation. So if somebody who's sending out a thousand dollars in cards a week has a lot easier chance, a much greater chance of pulling in a thousand dollar card. And the um, the people that are involved at that level are, you know small mid-tier vendors, people with giant collections, um, and they are hungry for additional opportunities because their engines are already cycled up. They're already on the ground running a business from something small to mid-size. And those people are going to be the ones who are going to put their hands up and say, hey, we want to come into the platform. The problem is to say to the 400, say, vendor class uh, users, uh, everybody put 100 bucks in and then add stuff to uh, your have list, means you have a whole bunch of vendors staring at each other across the marketplace. It's almost like being in the mall before it opens. Everybody's looking out of their store at each other saying, hey, you want to come buy this apple? No. Uh, do you want to come buy this orange? No, because we're all sellers. Um, the real question is, how do you get the other class of people, the people that are you know trying to build out EDH decks and just need a whole bunch of two, one, two, three, four, five dollar cards, and they want to get them by sending out the same. They don't want to, for whatever reasons, the psychology around spending real money is different than sending cards they already own. And they like the concept of trading without having to open their wallets. And I'm confused as to how you get the, enough of those people into the system and get them committed, given the narratives that have been built up against Puka Trade, because a lot of the things that you're telling us here are very interesting. They are definitely a huge step forward. And, um, you know, you have my interest. But I'm concerned that you can get me on the platform on day one, but not the 20 people I want to send cards to. Yeah, so that's that's a valid narrative. So I'll just, you know, I'm, I've am i sent 8 million points on Puka Trade. Um, so if you go to the leaderboard and click all-time points, there's me at number one. Um, so I'm familiar with a lot of the challenges Puka Trade faces, uh, both as a power user and, you know, seeing the complaints of small people. So I, I think maybe there's just a bit of a empirical disagreement that isn't going to be resolved about the characteristics of those frustrated with Puka Trade. I don't think you have to search very far to find new users who are having a lot of trouble with Puka Trade, that they liked it, um, but they found that they sent out their cards and they never got anything in return. Um, and they... You know, they're trying to do bonuses now. Maybe that works. High transaction fees associated with those again. 
So I, I certainly believe, you know, again, these, these users, small users, uh, who do want to create their EDH decks, they've lost, um, a platform that's useful for them that, that maybe fulfilled this purpose at one time. Um, and I do believe we can capture some of those. I think, again, your, your narrative is a possibility. Um, we will certainly be very sensitive to what seems to be happening, uh, in terms of who's interested and any imbalances in the launch. But I, as an empirical matter, I think you're underestimating the small users who are unable to use Puka Trade, let alone TCG player to actually send out their cards and get stuff in return. Well, so how are you bringing in the small ball guy who wants five and ten dollar cards? What's his What's his end to this? He can send cards to people. He can buy currency. Um, again, I, I mentioned this idea of a floating want list where you don't even need to buy in the currency. If we feel like that's what's necessary, I think that's something we could implement. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent sure what the future holds there, um, but you know we we have things in mind. We believe that this is a market where there's an opportunity that the current options are not satisfying these users, and we have ideas for how to attract them. Okay. So, I mean, I, let me just say this and then we'll move on. It, it still seems to me that there's a very chicken and an egg um, kind of problem when you're kickstarting any marketplace. Yeah, there's um, network effects. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can't disagree, you know, with a very cynical narrative, it might be the case, um, but we will will be paying attention for that for sure. I mean, I guess one of the potential problems is that um, if you have a hundred users put a hundred dollars each in the system, you've got ten thousand worth of points. Just one of the power sellers on Puka Trade might decide to fulfill all those orders on day one. <laughs> that's the, that's the, isn't that kind of silly? Like, is this the is that a problem if everyone gets the cards they want? Like. That's a disaster for the site. To me, like that's well, wonderful. But a lot of those people, but a lot of those people that bought credit on spec for the system to be worthwhile in the long run, right? The other vendors that you attracted, people like yourself, people like me, um, yeah, but they just didn't, didn't really want didn't really want the cards. They wanted an opportunity to sell through to the marketplace. And if one guy ends up with all the points, then there's nobody to sell to but him, and he doesn't actually want cards either. Okay, so I grant that in this case where people are seeding the economy to be charitable, if one person swoops in and says, hey, you know, you want, uh, you're willing to, you know, take a Snapcaster for a hundred dollars, I'll send you a Snapcaster. Like, you know, in that case, if someone swooped in, that would be a problem. I advise, you know, not to do that in the long run. Um, <laughs> So you think, again, you, would you guys consider limits, like on on how much you can claim? I was just thinking during about the, during the first round of activity, just at so everybody gets a feel for the system and the points are well distributed. At the beginning, yes. At the beginning, it's there will be the ability to cash out, but we don't plan to make it as simple as click a button, get your money. Um, it, it's still going to be there because that that's our whole claim. So if if we say that you can't cash out for the first month, then that's just crazy and we've uh, tricked everybody. But it will not be click a button, get your money. It may be, you know, click this two button, <laughs> click two buttons, an email goes to Tom, and then Tom says, uh, okay, cool, here's your money. <laughs> like, it's... Right, so, I mean, the other potential problem here is that, say you're, 
you end up with ten million dollars worth of transactions flowing through the system in a, in, that in, a given, awesome. in a given year, right? It, that seems really sweet. Um, will the fee structure, as you've proposed it, um, support supporting that platform and the, the necessary client service, et cetera? You know, are how how tight um, are your revenue and expense models? Um, in terms of if you have to scale up in a hurry, how confident are you that y- your your modeling will support that? Uh, from an architectural point of view? Organizational. I mean, the ar- architecture is certainly part of that. Um, and I recognize that you might have a really good grip on your, your hosting costs, but that's not the only part of the business that needs to be scaled. I mean, you've also got marketing expenses and you've got client servicing that that has the potential to go exponential as network effects drive massive amounts of back and forth transactions between an increasing um, host of users, right? Customer service. Yeah. I think uh, the basic business model or the basic, you know, idea scales naturally. There are like uh, operational issues uh, that wouldn't scale. Like if the site launched with a minimal viable product and for some reason we had like 20,000 users overnight, like that would overwhelm us. The granted, I mean, it would be a blessing. Hopefully we wouldn't fumble so badly that the, you know, that we would damage our brand, but you know, that's, that's kind of fantastical in a way. Like we would love for that to happen, even if we're not prepared for it. Um, <laughs> I, I guess that's so, I mean, my perspective. Fair. So, I mean, one of the other things people are going to be wondering about is, do you guys have success and, you know, have you demonstrated success on other projects in the past? Can you talk a little bit about your experience um, with other startups? And, and I, I know you guys were, were the driving force between uh, behind another Puka trade related project as well. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little about that. Uh, okay. Well, before, before pukapoints.com, um, my, I, I made lots of little tools for Puka Trade. Um, one of them was Pukato. I released it for free, open source, and is that a success? Did I walk away with thousands upon thousands of dollars, like perhaps the MiseBot guy who was pulling in, um, like $350 a month via Patreon or Patreon, however the hell you pronounce that damn website. <laughs> Patreon, no. I think. Yeah, so no, I, I, I did not make as much money as him. I did receive like $150 worth of donations from people. Um, That's a soul uh, ring right there. Yes. Yeah, the the like, story is, so Tom and I both kind of made software tools um, to, to enhance our Puka Trade experience. And um, when I saw that Tom had web development skills, I, I pitched an idea to him. Um, the notion is, you know, Puka Trade has this bounty system. Or wait, no, so that came later. Uh, uh, basically, the notion is people were buying and selling Puka points in a very disorganized fashion. This is a, what I saw as kind of like something inelegant. It wasn't efficient. There was no market for Puka points. You could buy them from the site pukatrade.com, you can buy it for a fixed price, but the market price was much lower because, again, Pukatrade was printing too much currency, so the currency was being devalued, so people were not buying it from the site, they were buying it from each other, but they were doing it on, like, Facebook and with listings on uh, Reddit and stuff, and so I, I approached Tom, and I'm like, look, you you obviously have a lot of web development skills. Um, here's, I think there's an opportunity 
to just have a very simple site for buying and selling Puka points for like coordinating people. Um, can I, can yeah. I interrupt you? I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm curious. So I, I never bought a Puka point in my life. I'm curious why anyone would buy a uh, hundred Puka points for $1 ever and not just buy a card from TCG player. I never understood that. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would buy them at at fifty cents for a hundred or seventy cents for a hundred, but why would I ever pay one dollar for one hundred points? I don't know how much Puka Trade was really selling through their their front end, though. Uh, I mean, we don't have we don't have those numbers, they, right? They obviously made a bunch of. Well, yeah, they they did release numbers at some point. I'm sure it was like half of their revenue was through point sales. It actually surprised me. Um, you know, I was like, uh, they probably don't make that much because, you know, you can buy the currency for cheaper. So, um, so I can, I can answer that question from an international perspective. If you're a guy who is in a, a place like Australia that has uh, ridiculous shipping costs, or you're just uh, in a country where um, shipping is known to be problematic and many eBay uh, sellers and TCG sellers will not ship to you, your access to the North American marketplaces is extremely low. And one of the major features on Puka Trade was that you could send from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world just by manicuring a global distribution list. You, you could choose which countries you wanted to trade with. Um, and so uh, some of these people don't have credit cards that are usable overseas. Um, a lot of the major platforms in the U.S. don't ship to their location. And so Puka Points is a way to, to basically buy virtual currency and do an end run around that. I wonder what percentage of it was money laundering. <laughs> That's also a possibility. The, um, probably so, more than zero, right? <laughs> probably more than zero. So, I mean, here's another point I think is is probably um, worth discussing, gentlemen, which is that um, if you're massively successful in this endeavor, um, if I'm wrong and marketplace velocity is, is is relatively easy to achieve, thousands of people jump in because your value proposition is so compelling and secure that they see a, a market difference between you and PukaTrade, um, then you probably don't have to worry about Amazon or eBay or even TCG Player making a, a radical shift in your direction to emulate your best features because uh, a lot of those businesses are are big enough that they're kind of like battleships. They're very difficult to turn on a dime. Um, but I would argue that one of the hungriest companies uh, in the space has every reason to emulate your best features if they're successful, and that would be PukaTrade itself. My answer is go for it. Like, you know, I would have loved if Puka Trade, you know, they, they could implement a currency peg. They can do it. They haven't done it. And that's kind of the sad thing is, uh, you know, Tom can go more into the details. I think there's just, you know, there's the, the, the market isn't funded or founded on like strong economic principles. I'd like to believe that I help contribute to that with Cardsphere a bit. Like I knew, like what happened to Puka Trade was perfectly predictable. It happened anyway. So in some sense, there's like, well, if all of a sudden they become like super hyper competent and they solve all their problems, which is probably still doable, like that would be a threat to the site. But again, I come from the this is the perspective of I I like the thought that you know if there are two great sites that are competitive and they're offering like awesome features and the markets are working well, the currency isn't going to hell and people are unsatisfied. Like that's, that's fine. Bring it on. Um, Tom, speak to this from the development side as well, to a large extent. You'll be able to uh, 
create a new website under an alter ego for cardtopuka.com where people can ex- facilitate trades between Puka points and card sphere value. <laughs> yeah, well, they'll, uh, that's, that's so meta. Down. Uh, a clearing house, a, a cross border clearing house between the two platforms. I love it. Then so you take, then you take a transaction fee on that, and there you go. There's the money, boys. <laughs> so. Um, unfortunately, I, having spent a lot of time in the startup community, both as uh, a startup CEO myself and, and working with a lot of startups through my the agency that I've been running since 2001, um, the flippant remark, you know, bring it on um, and variations thereof always causes me concern. Um, because if we're talking about, you know, to go back to your earlier comment about being able to, to fund the servers for free forever, that's lovely. But in terms of when people are gauging um, their commitment to a project, they want to know that you're going to be committed to the project. And one of the best ways that they can gauge your commitment is that you're going to make a lot of money doing it. And when you end up having two products that are, are very similar to one another, it often comes down to um, very expensive marketing and or price wars that cost everybody money and lower the margins. Um, that's not really an ideal uh, situation uh, for anyone um, except the users who take who directly benefit from that battle. So I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss, um, you know, Puka Trade steering towards your best ideas um, if if push comes to shove, unless you're willing to cede that ground completely and say, you know, if they fix everything, then by all means we will retreat. Is that the case? Well, I mean, I'm mostly speaking for myself as someone again who just wants a good market, and if there are two good markets, great. Like I said, I use Puka Trade a lot. If it got better, I'd use it more and, you know, I make money that way. Um, you know, there is some sense. Yeah, I want to win. I want to, you know, Carsphere should win and, you know, eat Puka trade into the ground. I don't know. That doesn't motivate me as much. Um, like, you know, I just want to create a good product and if people emulate it. Uh, that's just my opinion, though. And maybe that doesn't convey, like, the strongest business sense. But that's because, you know, I'm not doing this to earn a million dollars. Um, you know, my my contribution has largely been to tell people, like, here's kind of how things should work to create a good market and not here's how we're going to win. Um, okay, so so beyond the two but beyond the two of you, um, who on the team is is a hungrier shark that's going to drive forward the, the business development and marketing objectives? Do you guys have a CEO? We have we have three founders of the team. We have three people listed on the the corporation filing. It's a Canadian corporation. Aren't you from Canada? I am indeed. I'm in Toronto. That's awesome. I, Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I've spent so so much time with these two Canadians, Michael and uh, Ted, uh, Michael Baranov and Ted Rodney. I just want to say their names because they're not here. Uh, they're great guys. So Canada seems pretty cool. Tra- uh, Travis, Travis, are you seriously sitting in Buffalo? Asshole of America, I, pointing I, fingers I, at Toronto, constantly rated best city in, in North America. I, I, first of all, contest Asshole of America. You can pick many cities that are worse, even though I don't care for Buffalo. Nor was I casting aspersions. I was only uh, asking. Fair, fair enough. So um, I guess what I'm asking is, is there somebody with a marketing background that is going to lead the charge in terms of um, marshalling your business development program to make sure that we're attracting users and hitting critical mass on the platform? This is probably something we need. I mean, I will readily admit it. Two of the three founders are developers, and the other guy is a, a, a bearded community manager type. Um, 
So well, as far as community managers are worthless if they have beards. Well, fortunately, he just has to type. He doesn't have to make a uh, a visual appearance to anybody. <laughs> we, we we could really benefit from a, a team member who who shared our values and passion that that also had strong business, um, you know, smarts. And I am I'm looking for that person both in my peers at work and and people around me. Um, at, at this time, it's it's developers trying to solve problems. Our best. Yeah, maybe, yeah. You, maybe you can uh, hire James for a set number of points per month. I was I was about to say I it represents a supreme conflict of interest. But since I've been giving you a hard time, I feel <laughs> feel okay saying that. Um, yeah, I'm an experienced CEO, and you have my attention. <laughs> my, uh, my friend at work, uh, I play magic with him every day at lunch. He he offered, he liked the idea. He used Puka Trade for a while, and he was like, "Your site seems interesting. I want to invest." And again, this this reveals my my ignorance, and I'm I'm okay saying it on air. I I said to him, "You want to invest? Like, what what would I do with your money? Like, what do you want me to spend it on? Advertising? I, I don't even <laughs> like advertising. So I never even pursued his offer." Because we don't need money, and people kept asking, you know, why don't why don't? Well, that's not true. That was a bad thing to say. We don't need money, but people kept asking, why don't you do a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe? And I'm like, what are we what are we going to do with the money? You're so, not sure how to spend the money. So yeah. So, so let's just compare in in you know the projection forward, extrapolating your current activities. How many hours per week are you spending coding this site now? Uh, there's two developers, and there are. So I'm not being fair. I need to I need to give credit to we have at least three, two other uh, part time contributors who have probably contributed I don't know uh, a couple percent each of the code base. The two core developers are myself and Michael. Um, weekly, Michael busts his ass, and I'm always yelling at him. Go play magic. Don't forget why we're doing this in the first place. But the dude will work eight hours at at his day job and then come home and spend eight more working. I don't know how he does it. He's a machine. He's he's Russian. I can only figure there's some weird culture difference there because I come home and I'm lazy and want to play PS4 and Xbox. So Michael's putting in like eight hours every day. I'm putting in like four, three, and more on the weekends and more late at night. Um, but we've built the site from the ground up in... Uh, six months and future site took a year or more to make and they had funding to pay people. So, you know, I don't know if that says anything. Yes. I mean, what it says to me is that you're in a pre incubation stage um, as a startup uh, where you only have a fractional portion of your code base ready. And the, you need to, in your head, imagine the version of events where you're a year down the road, you have 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 users, and the programming requirements vastly outpace the available the time you have available between the, the, the members of the team you just mentioned. And you need five more bodies, 10 more bodies, 20 more bodies, and how radically the culture shifts when suddenly you need not just more programmers, but managers um, and high-level architects who are, you know, helping to make sure that the the code base is, you know, scalable, that it's bulletproof, that it's fully secure, um, that 
you know, all of these problems that might arise in, from anywhere from the economics to the client service, et cetera, are able to be responded to, um, you know, as nimbly and, and efficiently as possible. And, you know, there's all sorts of requirements that, that could hit you guys head on down the road. Um, and I think it's, a, you know, pretty critical to have a game plan for, you know, how the team evolves, how the code base evolves, and um, how your interactions with the community evolve in terms of your commitment to them um, to keep delivering the, you know, the level of excellence that you've promised. Um, uh, none of those things are, are inconsequential, right? Right. They sound like fun problems to have, though. <laughs> they, they they can be, but they, I would argue that they are uh, a lot more fun when you're prepared. Um, when the plan was already kind of sitting there waiting for you to um, execute as opposed to something that you try to handle on the fly. Because many a startup has, has been run into the ground simply because the culture of the first three or four people in the door cannot survive the next 20 hires, right? Yeah. So, uh, go ahead, sorry. So where are we actually with this project? I mean, when we go to cardsphere.com, which is where people can find the current representation of the project, um, you know, there's no functionality for me to interact with. There's just some bullet points. So how far off are we from the launch of a MVP that people can start fooling around with? Uh, so if you're going to cardsphere.com, uh, this is probably a misstep on our part. That That is not the site to go to. If you're a subscriber to our subreddit, um, staging.cardsphere.com is where you want to be going. Um, and it, it, right now, it's in a state that it's a fully functional trading website. You, when you sign up, you'll, you'll get a million points. You will have a million dollars. You're rich. Um, but we opened this up back in January. It's our open staging environment. And it it functions like the real site will function. There just is no money, and we tell people not to send out cards. But you can walk a, a trade through the entire process. You can you can see the package mac- matching happening. There are enough users in the system that if you add like the common cards that people are familiar with, uh, like the lands, the fetches, uh, any of the new Aether Revolt rares and stuff like that, and if you add those to your haves list and go to send cards, you you will see packages being generated. Like I have a package of some guy right now that's 50 cards. Um, but this site has been live since January, the staging environment. We've continued to iterate, it on, iterate on it uh, based on the feedback that we've received. Um, but cardsphere.com, without the staging in front of it, is just a placeholder. We, we should honestly be redirecting that to staging.cardsphere.com. Right. So uh, when do you plan to turn the keys and attempt to take this live? That's a great question. A lot of people have asked that. And just yesterday, somebody advised that, you know, Modern Masters is coming out and that's a perfect opportunity, perfect timing. Uh, I can only speak and say that we are, are very close. Um, as far as site functionality goes, we're, we're quite happy with our, our MVP. Um, we still have to get a payment processor and, you know, get the cash-in stuff working. Um, yeah, one, one story, I mean, this is like uh, one of my favorite Tom stories, I guess, is when we were working on PukaPoints.com, we didn't get through that story all the way. 
but PukaPoints.com, we, we threw it together in a few weeks. And Tom was just like, one night he was like, I want to turn it on. I just want to go live. And he did it. And I'm like, what are you doing? But then it, it worked. Like, people came to the site. People used it. We got a bunch of transactions. It was like the best feeling. Because I'm not a web developer. I've never launched a startup. And this is obviously something very small. Um, but, you know, we, we put it on... We put it live, we, you know, linked it on some places, and boom, transactions started happening, Puka points, buying, selling, um, and we just, we turned it on, and we were still, like, going to improve it a bunch, but even that was enough. And I'm not saying Puka, or uh, Cardsphere will, you know, we don't want to release that half-baked, but um, getting that MVP is, like, super exciting, and I believe we can do that. Yeah. I didn't I did not give you a date but I, I truly I, I want it to be in March I, I want I want to turn the key in March um, so if our listeners are interested in getting in on the ground floor of this what is the best way for them to make sure that they're on the notification list when you're ready to turn it on um, so we communicate with our users mostly through our subreddit um, where do people find that uh what is it is it r yes reddit.com slash r slash card sphere i always forget the slash r part it's a subreddit so i want it to be s but yeah would it also be true that they should pre-register at staging.cardsphere.com so that they're notified um they they can register to try it out and we will have their email address at that point in time and it, it will help that will be an email list that we can can blast out to um but we're i mean we're expecting that most of our early adopters especially this first wave which will not be completely publicly you know any anybody can sign up um it will be more hand-picked and and volunteer and survey based uh like 100 users is what we're targeting um, but those people who are interested in that can can follow us on the re- on the subreddit. Okay. All right. We've been talking with Tom Reese uh, and his partner uh, Peter. Uh, sorry, how do you pronounce your last name? Tweeg. You got it. Right. So Tom Reese and Peter Tweeg have joined us from Cardsphere. Thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Yeah, really glad to have you guys on with us today. Yeah, thanks. It was a great chat and. Uh... We look forward to continuing it. Like uh, like we said, feedback is the lifeblood of the site. Um, some comments are critical, but we take those gracefully, and we hope to improve from them. Yeah, and, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to using it. Yep, ditto. And uh, it would be lovely to have you guys back on post-launch so that we can do a little bit of a debrief about how things have gone. If they can find the time. I, I'll just come on and just cry the whole time. fantastic all right well tom and peter thanks so much for joining us this week thanks for having us and that's a wrap for this week folks all right well i'm glad our guests could join us and uh where can people find you james as always you guys can find me on twitter at mtg critic as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com and again, I'm Travis Allen, Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, on Twitter. Uh, I write every Monday for MTG Price. I show up on Cartel Aristocrats most Mondays. And if you enjoy playing Magic, check out scry.land, find Magic in your area. 
And I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mgtprice.com ProTrader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 56, right? Is that correct? Yeah, 56. Uh, I've enjoyed our time together, James, and uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you, Travis. Thanks to the guys from Cardsphere, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.